Welcome to the Agency Profit Podcast, a show dedicated to going deep space on agency operations, which is just as nerdy as it sounds. I'm your host, Marcel Petipoff. I'm the CEO of Parakeeto, a firm that helps digital and creative agencies measure and improve their profitability. Join me as I interview some of the smartest thought leaders and agency owners in our space and go deep into operations and metrics and all the other things you need to get right so you can spend less time worrying about operations and more time executing on your vision. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agency Profit Podcast. I'm very excited today to have on the show an intellectual property and marketing law expert who has been serving on the consulting panel for the American Association of Advertising Agencies. You might know them as the four A's. She was the president of the American Ad Federation and runs an incredible podcast called The Innovative Agency. Uh, And she's been kind enough to have me on that show as well. Uh, So with all of that, Sharon Tork, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Hi, Marcel. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you're here, too, because we have not really talked about the legal side of the business. And of course, it's a pretty important side of the business and one that many operations leaders and founders do have to spend time thinking about, um, but probably uh, are not very comfortable in. So really excited to dive into the nuance today with you. I'm excited, too. So before we get into all of that, I want to give you a chance in your own words to explain uh, who you serve and what you do. Thanks. Yeah, um, I'm the founder of Toric Law. We sort of do business in the industry and in the agency world as legal and creative. And uh, we serve independent agencies, primarily throughout the U.S., um, mid and small in size in three areas. Um, the first is intellectual property, and that is um, due diligence around IP, protection, enforcement, The second, and I would say this is bread and butter work for us because it's probably our most frequently requested work, is contract negotiations, contract development, so that our agency clients um, have strong relationships and lucrative relationships. And then the third area is marketing regulation compliance. So for those agencies who specialize in influencer marketing or who have data privacy compliance questions and issues, Um, or who just want to make sure that their sweepstakes is compliant. That's sort of the third leg of the stool. So it's IP, contracts, marketing, regulations, all focused on the independent agency world. Well, I'm glad that you found your way here, and I'm really glad that you're doing this. And again, I'm glad that you're here because I want to dig into the part of, of course, I'd love to talk about all of these things and hopefully over time we'll be able to have you back on and dig into IP and dig into uh, all this very interesting stuff around the nuances of actually running campaigns and working with influencers. But today I want to focus on the thing that uh, almost everyone listening to is going to have done or going to have to do at some point uh, in running their agency, which is put a contract in place with their client and likely have to negotiate that contract. So I want to start with, you know, just making sure that we're on the same page about how you define that contract negotiation phase and why it's important to be well versed or at least have some frameworks to operate in when you get into that part of uh, closing a deal with a client. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's it's fundamental to, you know, the flow of money through your firm. It's fundamental to setting the expectations that you and the client have of each other, just of how you're going to collaborate. Um, it is a legal document, of course, and there's a lot of legal terminology and terms and conditions in it, but the negotiation process of putting your MSA or your professional services agreement in place can really, well, not can, does really set the tone for how the relationship 
is going to unfold overall. And so you can also learn a lot about your clients based upon the way you negotiate the contract that you ultimately sign with them. All right. And I want to dig into uh, all of those. The first one, we'll start with kind of stakeholders and their involvement in this. And you raise a really great point. Having the people who are actually going to be involved in the client side um, can be really helpful. And I would imagine that's because, you know, and <laughs> I'm I'm guilty of, of saying things like this and feeling things like this where I just feel like lawyers are getting in the way of us doing mm -hmm. a deal. But of course, their job is to protect their clients from risk. Just like uh, if you've ever worked with an engineer before, their job is often to try and protect the engineering team from risk or the client from risk. And so they, they see the system, they call things out that could break, that won't scale, et cetera. And so um, I, I could see how having people on the client side to be able to provide context and you know, identify things that are going to be important or things that won't be so important because they understand the process or the scope or the nature of the work that's being done. On the agency side, who generally is involved in the contract negotiation process and how might that change as the company scales, um, where in the early days it might be the founder, but um, as the company scales, it might have to get delegated to other folks on the team. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I favor a centralized approach as possible. Um, on the side of the agency team when you're doing contract negotiations. And that I know runs sort of contra to what a lot of agencies of uh, the, who are small in size do, which is the account rep who's handling um, that account perhaps, or the salesperson on the team who's handling the business development work will be in charge of getting the agreement done. Um, and the reason why I don't think that's a successful recipe in most cases is because you end up with a patchwork of deals from client to client that have no um, semblance of any kind of policy about how you, um, as an agency, negotiate the things that matter to you. So what I would say to that is who should be involved? Um, yes, in the early days, it's typically the, the agency principal. As you get bigger and scale, uh, typically, most agencies at that point will add an ops or a finance lead into the agency, and that is probably the most uh, appropriate person to actually be involved in negotiating and signing off on these agreements because they understand the agency's margins better than perhaps the account team does, and they also understand the bigger picture. So they know what other deals are, are pending or what other contracts are committed to by the agency and what the financial implication of those other deals might be. Also, they're the ones who can police the consistency or the considered decision not to be consistent because you really want a piece of business, for example, um, and a contract. And also they've read more, they've read more of these. So they've been through more of these. So I'm for a centralized approach. I am not for a, an approach that um, a lot of agencies engage in who are, you know, in their defense, just trying to get a deal done as quickly as possible and to make sure that there's something in place that resembles the way they want their relationship to work. But I'm not in favor of sort of a scattershot, um, let's mark up the contract we got from the last agency we worked at and make it fit this deal or... Um, in this case, we use ours. In that case, we use theirs for no well-considered reason. I think consistency is appropriate, and that means centralization. So the same people and the same process, and whenever possible, the same document system. So you know, using the agency's MSA and all the schedules that go along with it. 
It makes perfect sense. And I even just think about how problematic it is to, you know, I, I think about the salesperson being the person that scopes the work. The incentive structure there is, you know, there's a tension that's built into that where, of course, they're not incentivized to scope the work realistically if that means the price might be difficult for the client to swallow. And similarly, yeah. as a salesperson or as account manager, the incentive structure is not there to protect the agency um, from terms that might undermine their ability to be profitable on a job. Whereas I think you made a really good point the operations person that has a better sense of the broader context will know likely when it's a better time to make concessions or when it's not necessary right. because of the other context that they're aware of that that person on the front lines may not have so uh, i think that's a a really acute point and one that is enlightening for me at least to be thinking about so moving on from that i want to talk about some of the things that I think that you think are important to pay attention to in that contract negotiation, because I'm sure there's a lot of things that get redlined and thrown back and forth. But um, sometimes it, I think it can be hard for us to discern where sh what what hills should I be willing to die on or, or what kinds of things should I be paying attention to? And of course, this is going to vary from one agency to another. But generally, what's your framework for trying to determine what those um, important points are that they need to be paying attention to? Right. Well, sort of taking the three D's, as I call them, and pushing them aside, namely the deadlines, the deliverables, the dollars, which should be in your statement of work, by the way, not in your MSA, in my opinion. Um, so pushing those to the side, because those are the things that agencies revert to first, and they're usually pretty good at sharpening their pencils and, um, and, and you know, figuring out what's best for them in that regard. So taking those aside, I will I will address payment for a second, and that is um, making certain that you've got a really clear idea of what the payment terms actually mean in real time for your agency. Um, agencies are great at setting you know their terms. We're a 30-day term agency, or we're a 60-day term agency, but be careful about what triggers the the payment term um, and the agreement that you sign. Many times clients will sign a contract with you that doesn't obligate that time to start running until they've approved the invoice, for example. Um, that's, a, that's a good recipe for adding at least an additional 30 days onto when you're gonna see your money. Um, in other cases, the agencies don't split their budget between professional service fees and the cash that is a pass-through for production expenses, media buys, Typically, you're going to want two different payment terms for those expenses. You're going to want one for your fees, which you can choose to bill in arrears. Most agencies do that. The second, though, is figuring out what do you need to bill in advance so that the agency is not extending its own neck out cash-wise to make media buys, um, to pay third-party production vendors, whomever it is. So that's another thing to consider. So it's not just as simple as the number you assign to um, the term date. It's there are other things to consider. And then I would say the third thing is if you want a shot at being able to, should it come to this, collect attorney's fees or collection costs for a client that doesn't pay, that's got to be in the agreement or you'll never get to court to enforce it. So I would add those two things in. Yeah. So pushing those aside. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that another one that I see all the time is like language that leaves the approval of a deliverable. Like a lot of times we see milestone payments based on delivery, whatever, but that leave it in the client's hands to like decide when it's done, which is obviously a huge risk because that subjective Absolutely. goalpost can get moved infinitely off into the future. Um, so really, really good point there on it's not just the terms, but what triggers them and, and really think through the risk around how that language 
uh, is laid out in the contract. That's a good one. Anything else around the payment terms to pay attention to? No, I would say that's a good segue into the next one, which is make sure you um, are thinking hard about what the client responsibilities are that you want reflected in the agreement. And the reason why it's a good bridge from payment to this is that you want the client to um, have a healthy set of responsibilities for timely giving you information, timely giving you approvals, um, and for being responsible for any additional costs that result from them not fulfilling those obligations. So that's important. Um, because the last thing you want to do is be stuck holding the bag or having missed a, um, a, a good deal in terms of a media buy or having missed in a window of availability with a production partner and maybe being subject to a rush fee that then has to get passed on. So you want the client to be responsible for moving the project along. Some agencies even need to consider um, putting a dormancy fee clause in their agreement because they'll have clients who just sit on work and they've got their team members just, you know, on pause and they can't deploy them onto other accounts or for profit elsewhere. So those are things to think about as well. So I think those are worth fighting for because I think the client should be a responsible partner to the agency and getting the work done. Um, my personal passion point and the, the, where I think agencies give it away way too often is the timing of the transfer of intellectual property rights to the work that the agency does. Most of the time, agency and client ultimately intend that the client's going to own the intellectual property rights to the work product, and that's fine. But make sure you're not creating a perception that they own it any sooner than the date on which they paid you for your work. Because you need to hold that as leverage um, to get paid in a timely manner. And also be thinking through whether or not there's IP that you own or create as an agency that you don't intend the client to ever own. You're just loaning it to them. You're licensing it to them. You need to carve that out in your agreement. Um, and make sure you've got a correct statement of responsibility for third-party IP that's being incorporated into the work. Things like stock photography or software. Um, that neither of you own, but that somebody's responsible for properly licensing to include in the deliverables. So IP is a critical area, and I think an overlooked area because the, of the default knee-jerk, you know, assumption that well, of course the client's going to own it at the end of the day, and we're fine with that. You may be, but not so much if you're not paid or if you're not paid in a timely manner. Do you want some free resources to help you measure and improve your profitability? If you do, then I want to tell you about our agency profitability toolkit, which you can grab absolutely free in the show notes or by heading to parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit. It's packed with training videos, cheat sheets, templates, and all kinds of other great resources to help you start measuring and improving the essential metrics that are going to drive better profitability in your business. And it's helped thousands of other agencies around the world do the same. So I want to encourage you to go and grab a copy of that. And if you'd rather get in the fast lane and just have our team of experts guide you through the process of measuring and improving your profitability, then I want to encourage you to apply for a consultation at parakeeto.com. And with that, I want to thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll let you get back to it. A very good point. One of the very few points of leverage I think an agency can hang on to once they've made the yeah. investment and borne the cost of doing all the work for the client and are now at the point where they're kind of holding their hands out waiting for that overdue payment to come through. Right. <laughs> a good one to hang on to. And you raised a really good point, uh, which is 
ownership versus licensing, which I think right. often get conflated as kind of being the same thing, but of course can be two separate things and can work together as well. I, I'm curious, how common is it for agencies to write into the contract a license back to them for the work? So the client owns it, but they then get a license back so they could potentially take that, modify it and reuse it going forward, which I think is, is a lot more common for agencies that are building things that can be then templatized and reused. Yeah, I think there's two um, there's two points to consider there. One is making certain that if there's pre-existing work or agency proprietary work that gets plugged into deliverables for multiple clients, that you carve that out in the agreement and that you make it clear that the agency is retaining the ownership, but it is licensing it to the client for the purposes of the services that it's rendering under that contract. The second is making certain to hold back a license as an agency to use or display the deliverables you create for the client for your own marketing or promotional purposes as an agency. This is, you know, this is you typically refer to as a publicity rights clause in some MSAs, but it truly is an IP carve out for the agency because display rights and the rights to copy or share or, or you know, show your work are an IP right. And so agencies really need to, to work hard to try to reserve this right in their agreement because it's how you show your capabilities and your smarts to the next client who you want to sell. And that's true too for even client identities. Some clients are very um, timid about letting agencies even tell the world that they're working with them or including their logo on their wall of fame. Um, and so these are things that I think are worth pursuing and and sometimes hills worth dying on because this is lifeblood the agency's ability to show what it can do is necessary to its continued you know viability and so i think it's important i think too you have to make the client feel safe and secure that you're not going to share anything that's proprietary or anything that they may have rejected because they didn't like it and they don't want it associated with their brand or work that never saw the light of day so i think those are fair you know, points on the part of the client. Um, and I think this is a conversation you need to have up front in the MSA negotiation. You know, the middle ground here is um, we'll talk about it at the time you want to use it and we'll give you permission on a case-by-case -case basis, which sounds super fair in, in the inception. But if a relationship's in your rearview mirror, are you really going to call that client and say, hey, can we use a case study of the campaign we did for you um, in this next pitch that we're working on right now? It's just, it's not very workable. And, and are they really going to take the time to review it and approve it and put it all through all the right stakeholders? And I think that's, in my experience, the reason that most clients, if they, especially if they give you their own paper, will typically have a clause in there that basically says you can't use anything. And from my perspective, it's usually just because it, it's the time savings. They don't want to have to deal with the overhead of having to review and, and have nuanced discussions about these things. And so I think you make yeah. a good point where if you can write a clause that is empathetic to their concerns and addresses them, you probably have a better chance of getting that through and then actually being able to leverage, hopefully, big, amazing brands on your website, um, which really do... Have have an impact on your yeah. ability to land other big brands that uh, look Absolutely. to that for trust. So another point is, and we're seeing this increasingly, and it is sort of the double-edged sword of exclusivity, or some agencies might see it referred to as a non-compete uh, even though it's, it's absolutely not a non-compete, but some, I don't know, somebody just some years ago decided to draft it and call it that. What it really is, is a, is a expectation by the client that the agency will not do business with certain competitors of the client, um, either in a product category or um, in a particular industry or, 
I think agencies have to take a super hard line on this. And so our, our recommended default position on it on behalf of the agency is no, we're not going to agree to it. Now I'm practical girl. So I know that in some cases where an agency really wants this feather in their cap or where we're looking at a deal that represents a ton of revenue to the agency, um, or it's an opportunity to break into a category they really want to pursue, that they're going to think about it. And so to those of you who fall into those footsteps, I would say, if you're going to think about agreeing to exclusivity, um, you better price at a premium uh, to make it worth the business you're potentially forbearing by um, agreeing to be exclusive. And that can show up either in higher prices or it can show up in minimum spend requirements of the client in a particular year uh, or a minimum number of years and a particular spend per year for the client. So you should be getting some financial boost um, for the privilege of agreeing to be exclusive whatever that means in your contract. And it can mean different things um, to different. Some companies care about you working with particular competitors. Some companies care only about you working in certain product categories. And so you've got to work to define, if you're going to agree to it, to narrow it as much as you possibly can. There's And there are ways to do that. Uh, and I could imagine that, that that the landscape on that is is probably shifting where more and more agencies are becoming specialized and often specialized in particular industries or problem spaces or categories where part of the pitch is yeah. the institutional knowledge they gain from working with everyone's competitors and then being able to apply that best practice or what have you. So it's it's an interesting one and I think based on your positioning is you know might be more or less important depending on what the strategy behind your agency is because um, of course to your point you don't want to be pigeonholed or at the very least um, have that loom over you even after perhaps the contract has expired or the contract uh, the, the client has moved on which would be particularly devastating right you know and I, I didn't finish my thought earlier and that was my fault because I think I went off on a, a bit of a tangent but it is a double-edged sword of specialization and niching as an agency I'm I'm a huge fan of niches obviously I've chosen to do that in my own business but it can come with the expectation or a certain sense of proprietariness on the client's part about having you as an agency all to themselves. They don't want to share you because you, you're an expert in a particular category or a particular um, type of work. So you got to think about how exclusive you're willing to be and price accordingly. And then make sure the agreement is tailored as narrowly as possible. Um, you know, my favorite thing to strike out on this provision is a, a request from the client that the agency be exclusive after the agreement's over with. Like the conclusion plus a year or the conclusion plus six months. It's silly. If we're done, we're done. And I know clients don't like to see it that way because you still have that competitive intelligence in your collective mind as an agency. But um, when you think about it on balance in terms of the you know, the leverage each party has, the agency needs that flexibility to move on to that next piece of work. So I have one last question for you. I know we're, we're getting to time here, Sharon, but the thing that I'm sure is on a lot of people's minds because is the thing you raised earlier, which is the client's paper versus ours. And the more upmarket you go and the smaller you are as an agency, the more likely it is that it's going to be, um, it's going to seem like if you don't sign our paper, we're going to walk away from this deal. I'm curious in your mm -hmm. experience, you know, how often 
is it safe for an agency to push back? Because that's the fear, of course, that everybody has is that, will I actually lose this deal if I push back on this? Um, what's right. your, your tip for when an agency finds himself in that position? Well, I think, um, first of all, agencies might be surprised at how often um, having their own, getting their own contract on the table first results in that paper actually being used versus waiting on the clients. This is especially true if, the, if you're working on a project or a relationship that is within the financial authority of your marketing counterpart at the client. You know, they have their certain um, protocols and limits. And if the project or the relationship is priced right, they don't have to go through that escalation. So it's not always true that they won't sign your contract. So don't default to that assumption. Secondly, even if they're going to require as a condition of doing business together that you do sign their agreement, it's still smart to have your own MSA and to get to the table with it first for a couple of reasons. First of all, it sets the table differently for the negotiation. I've seen it time and time again. Secondly, it predetermines for you what your benchmarks are as an agency against which you're going to evaluate the MSA that the client presents to you, right? It's sort of a mental checklist of what's important to you, what you value as an agency, and a compare contrast opportunity for you so that you can see, wow, that's really out of line with what we usually do, or, hey, we don't really love the way that's worded, but it's not it's not a hill to die on for us for this particular deal. So it's a great benchmarking tool. And it just, it creates a different um, dynamic during the negotiations, I would say that. And so um, to every agency who has said to me, you know what, we do business with really large companies, we typically sign their agreement. We're not so worried about what the state of our MSA is. I, I don't think that that's productive thinking for most agencies. I think you should go through the exercise of having your own toolkit, of having thought through your own positions on these issues. So then at least you're making a knowing decision if you want to compromise on any of them um, and that you're getting a fair return for that compromise from the client. Yeah, uh, that's a big insight and a takeaway for me is just the exercise of working through this surfaces a lot of questions that we're probably not really thinking about and forces us to think all the way through them because, you know, a legal contract is is a lot of logic statements, essentially. And so um, I'm guilty of uh, glossing over those logic statements a lot without having somebody facilitating the process of really having to say, hey, what what is your answer to this? What is your position on this? And being able to provide that feedback. So I could totally see how even if it's not getting used having gone through that exercise could be really, really helpful going forward to try and guide client engagements in a direction that is better for the agency. So uh, that's a great takeaway for me. I know. Yeah. I just want to say one last thing. I know for a lot of agencies, length is important. And I would say, don't stress so much about the length of your agreement. It's just, I have never seen a deal go sideways because the agency had a contract that was too long. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had on this point. The document should be as long as it needs to be to reflect both parties' intent and to protect both parties. Don't worry about the length. Don't worry about losing a deal because of the length. You're not going to look any easier to do business with because you have a two-page contract than if you have a 15-page contract. So that's just my little soapbox about the length. And I understand that I look self-interested when I say that, but it's the truth. And, and so don't worry so much about that, agency owners. So with all of that, Sharon, I'm sure there's people listening who uh, would love to learn more about you, follow what you're doing, and uh, find out where you're publishing content. So where should they follow you online? 
Well, first, thank you for having me. It's been a delight talking with you. Um, the first place is our blog has a lot of good content on just agency business issues like this. So legalandcreative.com. Um, and we also do have a weekly podcast called The Innovative Agency, which actually is not about legal issues. Uh, we might occasionally weave in a legal point here and there, but it is really about business and innovation issues in the agency world. So that's The Innovative Agency, wherever you listen to podcasts. Awesome. So we'll have links to uh, Sharon's website, the podcast in the show notes. Uh, so you can just scroll down and find those there. And Sharon, the, the pleasure is all ours. I'm really, really glad that you were able to come on. And uh, I mean, this was just a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. I'm sure our listeners have as well. So I can't thank you enough for making the time for us today. It's my pleasure, Marcel. It was really good to talk with you. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've ever found yourself thinking, man, I get so much value from this podcast. I wish there was something I could do to return the favor. Well, today's your lucky day because you can leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. And it is incredibly helpful. Of course, if you haven't grabbed a free copy of the Agency Profit Toolkit, go and get that. It's got tons of free resources to help you improve your profitability. If you're looking to get in the fast lane and get help from experts to improve your profitability and measure your most important metrics, then apply for a consultation at parakeeto.com. We'd love to chat with you and figure out how we can help. With all of that, thank you so much for being a listener, and we will see you on the next episode.
see you again.